We are going to be in Genesis 4, and that's making you think that, hey, we're just doing verse by verse through Genesis since we've done the first three chapters, and we are doing 4 and 5 today. But that's just a strange coincidence. We will uh, be skipping around after tonight uh, with the goal of showing Christ in the Old Testament. So you can see Christ through all these Old Testament verses and, um, and, and have all of the scriptures speak of him. And I'll get right back into that as soon as we open with a word of prayer. If you bow your heads with me. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we thank you for the opportunity to be together tonight to study your word. And Lord, no matter where we turn in this Bible, we know we'll find your son, Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, to see what you would have us to see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we would find you tonight, Lord, as we seek you with all our heart. And we pray these things now in the name of our Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so as this class, as you know, is called Seeing Christ Through All of Scripture, this is not some human invention of saying that <clears throat> uh, the Old Testament is about Jesus. This is Jesus' claim about himself. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So as we see uh, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus, when he's speaking with the Pharisees, the very teachers of the Old Testament, those who actually open up the Old Testament and teach it to the Israelites, Jesus says to those guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's these that speak of me. Now, I don't know if you're catching how arrogant that would sound to first century Jews, that all of this study they've done for centuries in their family through, through this entire nation, that very cherished Old Testament book, he's saying, all you ever did was study me. We would not tolerate that in our church today if anybody stood up and says, you're teaching the Bible good, it's all about me. Well, they had, to, they had to learn how to accept the fact that Jesus was proving that all of that Old Testament scripture was about him. So he says that in John 5, 39, and then in Luke 24, as he's speaking to the Emmaus Road disciples, um, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to expound to them all things concerning himself. So Moses and the prophets, that's pretty much letting you know the whole Old Testament, Jesus is teaching the Emmaus Road disciples about himself, saying from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's all about Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you look at the very first letter of the entire Bible, it's a Hebrew letter that we call Bet, and it's for the word Bereshit, which means in the beginning. It's this letter that we would call a B today, but they call a Bet. It's the very first letter of the entire scriptures is Bet. The very last letter in the entire Bible from Revelation 22, the very last letter is called the noon. That's our N. So it starts with a B and ends with an N. And there are 3,116,480 letters in this Bible. 3,116,480. That's why I was a little bit late. I was finishing counting all that. Now, of all those 3,116,480 letters, it starts with a B, ends with an N, and B-N in Hebrew spells Bain, which is the Hebrew word for son, S-O-N. So Jesus says it's all about him. From the first letter to the last letter spells son, and the 3,116,480 letters in between are all about the son of God. All right. Have a good night, folks. That's a mic drop right there, right? All right.
we'll do a little bit more for your guys' sake because you're the faithful that show up on Wednesday night even when we're not on campus. All right, so we'll keep going. So you're saying, oh, that's a real big deal. You know how many letters are in the Bible? Well, how do you like these apples? There's 787,137 words. There's 1,189 chapters. There's 31,102 verses. And the very center verse, because starting next week, I'm going to teach you that the Bible emphasizes the very center of stories. The main thing that you're to learn from various stories of the Bible is usually or often found in the very center of that story. And sometimes we English readers miss the meaning of a story of the Bible because we think it's at the end. And we read right past the middle and don't realize we read right past the um, main point. Well, what's the center verse of these 31,102 verses? The very center verse of the entire scriptures is Psalm 118, verse 8. And so what is it saying to us in the very center of this Bible? It simply says this, It's better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. There's your center verse. Doesn't that say a lot right there? Okay. All right. Since you guys paid so much money for this class, let me give you even more. All right. Let's keep going. Let's actually start in our text here. So we're going to start in uh, Genesis 4, and as you know, and I wrote this little paragraph at the beginning of your notes, it says, Adam and Eve would know the reality of the conflict of the seeds as described in the last chapter through their first two sons. So we had the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. We were told in chapter 3, verse 315, that there'd be conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and we're already told the outcome that the seed of the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that the seed of the woman would be victorious and deal a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent. But now we're going to see in chapter 4, as Adam and Eve begin to reproduce, we are going to see the beginnings of that conflict take place in their first two sons, Cain and Abel. So let's take a look. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So on an off note a little bit here, I just want you to I just want to point out to something to, to you that happens here in verse 2, that happens quite a bit in the scripture, and it's helpful when you can catch it. And that is simply this. Look how much time passed just within verse 2. Verse 2 says, Abel was born, and then in the same verse, he's already a shepherd of a flock. So could easily be 20 or so years that have passed within one verse. So sometimes things can get confusing if we don't notice the passage of time and how the Bible sometimes uh, doesn't uh, strictly account for it. You've got to notice it yourself. Now, Verse uh, 3, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So this is an often debated topic of what was right with Abel's sacrifice and what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice, and you'll hear various ideas on that. <clears throat> but the one that I find the most consistent with all of Scripture 
is this idea of works righteousness versus righteousness based on faith. You see, the reason why I brought up Adam and Eve at the very beginning is because as they sinned and they attempted to sew fig leaves together to cover the mark of their sin, the mark of their sin was their shameful nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover that. But that covering for their shame, God did not accept. <coughs> Excuse me. So instead, God killed an innocent animal, an animal that had known no evil, did nothing wrong. God killed that animal and covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with the skin of that animal. So what we get from that is God is allowing for an innocent animal to substitute for mankind in the death that they're supposed to die. Because you remember the promise to Adam, on the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And then he doesn't die because God allows a substitute to die in his place. So God institutes the sacrificial system as early as Genesis chapter 3 that we see Christ fulfill in his atoning work on the cross. So we, we see with Cain is Cain has no blood in his offering, does he? It's simply the work of his hands. I believe it's the equivalent of Adam and Eve sowing the fig leaves together. He's doing a work of the hand from the fruit of the ground to cover his sin, and it's not accepted. Abel seems to have learned from mom and dad. I'm pretty sure mom and dad would have taught him about God covering their shamefulness with animal skin, and blood had to be shed for the seriousness of sin. And it appears that Abel did that. He brought that type of sacrifice. So now what we're going to do tonight is we are going to cover pretty thoroughly this concept of substitutionary atonement. And the reason why I want to cover it so thoroughly tonight is because it's that important. Because if we look at cults today, one of the defining features of a cult is that they water down, mute, or even deny the sacrificial substitutionary work of Christ on the cross uh, as far as uh, it being by faith. They make it a matter of works. And when you have a works-based gospel, you have a false gospel. The Apostle Paul will say in Galatians chapter 1 that if even an angel from heaven brings you a gospel other than the gospel that I'm bringing you, you're to tell him he's anathema. Even if it's from an angel from heaven, if he gives you any different gospel, than the gospel that Jesus sets you free from the law, that you are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works. Any other gospel is anathematized. So uh, the importance of this doctrine is absolutely crucial. Any bit of works righteousness that is in your heart is directly diminishing your view of the cross. Jesus did it all. So if you think you just need to do a little or God's love is dependent upon your performance, that's a negative statement towards how you feel about the cross because Jesus has covered it all. So when Jesus is asked by his apostles, what are the works that were to work to be right with God? Jesus says the work for you to do is to believe on the one that God has sent. That's it. You're saved by grace through faith. So now here's gonna be our journey 
through substitutionary atonement. So if you want to know what you're learning tonight, it's that through Genesis 3, we see a sacrifice made for Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4 now, we're seeing the unaccepted work of Cain bringing the fruit of his hands. And we see the accepted work of Abel of bringing blood and trusting God that just through that substitute, that through faith in that substitute will we'll cover his sin through that shed blood that he will be atoned for. So we'll begin this journey. Uh, I wrote down for you Genesis 3.21, but that's simply where God, sows, uh, God kills the animal and covers them with the animal skin. Uh, I kind of already mentioned Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Okay, that says what? Very famous. You are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works so that no one can boast. Now we hear those two verses all the time, but now when we want to know the relationship between works and faith, that comes in the next verse that we don't often memorize. It's verse 10. So 8 and 9 say you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, so no one can boast. Verse 10 says, for you are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So God has saved you first, and it was by your faith in his atoning work that he saved you. Now that you're saved, he has works that he's prepared for you to walk in, and those works bear fruit to the authenticity of your salvation. Those works are the outward manifestation that the world can see of the inner reality that you've been redeemed by Christ. Okay? So I want you to keep that in mind as we continue through these verses. The next verses that I bring up are Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is an often confused verse because of that word work that's in it. And there it says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like, can you get any more works-based salvation than that? Well, it's a misunderstanding. Okay, work out your salvation. That means God has prepared good works for you to walk in. Work out those good works, okay? Work them out like you work out in a gym when you want to perform as an athlete. You want to perform as a Christian. You got to work out your salvation. If you're to work out your salvation, your salvation has to already be present in you for you to work it out, doesn't it? An unsaved person has no salvation to work out. So the salvation has to come first to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So here's the relationship between faith and works according to the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. He says, you've been saved by grace through faith alone. So work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Because if you don't work it out, you don't have good works. It says God has worked in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he puts on in us a want to, a will to do it. Okay, he, he works on us a will to do for his good pleasure and to do for his good pleasure. So if he put in us a will to do it and he equipped us to actually do it and then we don't do it, we have to explain how we're actually authentically saved when God's working that work in us that we're not responding to at all. So can you actually say that you're a person that's been redeemed by grace, given the Holy Spirit to empower you, and then God puts a want to and a will into you to do good works, and then there's no fruit to show of that? Is there any defense that you weren't authentically saved? I think not. I think Jesus Christ said, you will know a tree by its fruit. 
You'll know who are mine by the fruit that they bear, because good trees do not bear bad fruit, and bad trees cannot bear good fruit. So therefore a tree is known by its fruit, and that's how you will know who are mine by the fruit that they bear. So these works are not saving you, but these works are benefiting the world through you and serve as the outward sign of the inward reality of your salvation. Okay, so those of you that say, I'm not convinced by Genesis 3.21, where God actually did the sacrifice for them. Ephesians 2, that says you're saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of works. Philippians 2, which says that in working out your salvation, um, God is the one that worked in you to do these good works after you were saved. Um, James chapter 2, because the clever amongst you are saying James contradicts this in, J in chapter 2 of his, his book, that James will flat out say faith without works is dead. So, and I agree totally, faith without works is dead. Why? Because faith and works always accompany one another. Not often, always. Um, good works always accompany true authentic faith. Now, how, now, how James words this is, is, is what makes it tricky. He uses the word justify in two different ways. We're used to hearing that word justify to mean being justified by God towards salvation. He justified us. And it does mean that, I think, once in this passage. But then he uses the same word justify to mean give credence to or to prove. It justifies the fact that they're, or they already have faith. Okay, so let's read it and see how it works. This is James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. There it says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is, he means faith alone, apart from any good works whatsoever. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Okay, so if there's no works that benefit this other person, your faith is profitless. It's no good for anybody. So then he says in verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now he's going to unpack that a little. Let's watch him unpack this thought. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And so James will say, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. So he's saying, you want to say you have faith without works? Here's his point. Even the demons believe, even they have faith. You ask any demon you want and say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? What are they going to say? Yeah, I deal with him firsthand often, face to face, right? Okay, he's driven us out of many a person. Okay, uh, the demons, there's no atheist demons, are there? Okay, they all believe, they're all believers. Now, now that you know that demons are believers, what separates you from demonic faith? They have faith, but it's demonic faith. We have to have better faith than demonic faith. So even the demons believe and tremble. So he goes on in verse 20. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? <coughs> was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now this is not the saving justification. 
He's saying his faith is justified, his faith is proven, his faith is verified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Okay, Many chapters before that, Abraham received saving faith because Paul's going to say, uh, actually, let me let him say it in the book here. It says, when he offered Isaac on the altar, verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect. So it went beyond demonic faith, just the head knowledge that I know who Jesus is. Now it's made perfect because that faith is put into action and it's now made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is James's main point, that Abraham believed God and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. This is the righteousness that when we face God on judgment day, he will look at this righteousness, not that we have performed, but that was credited to us. Okay, Martin Luther said this is an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness from within. It's a righteousness we have from without. It was earned by Jesus Christ through his 33 years of perfection on this earth. And as he earned this perfection, he now credits us with that perfection through faith in him. Through faith in him, we're credited with that righteousness. So James here says, the scripture was fulfilled when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. That work perfected his faith and fulfilled the scripture which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified, verified, proven by works and not by faith alone. Why this passage gets so confused is because that word justify, he uses in two different ways with one word, okay? So these last couple justifies is the verify, prove type of justify. Now, 25, likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, meaning her works proved her faith, because watch this. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Okay, so what proved when she said, we heard of your God, we heard how he parted the Red Sea and allowed you to pass over on dry land and how he drowned the Egyptians afterward. We heard how you went through the desert for 40 years. We heard of your God. We heard of your God. We heard of your God. And she says, we heard and they all feared, but I believed. Okay. So she had faith. Her faith came by hearing. Isn't that Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. We heard of your God. And she says, they feared, but I believed. And she's justified by the work of hiding the spies. So the spies come. Now, is your faith authentic, Rahab? You've heard. Now, what separates you from all the other citizens of Jericho who are going to die? What separates you that you get to live? Well, it says that her faith justif was justified by her work of hiding the spies. Okay, so I hope you all follow what I'm saying here. And uh, verse 26, he concludes by saying, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It doesn't mean you're saved by those works. It simply means that they always, works always accompany true faith. Works always accompany true faith. They are the outward manifestation of the inward reality of true salvation. So what I like to say is this. You were not saved 
for your sake only. You have been saved for the sake of many people. Many people should have better lives because Christ saved you. Okay, you should be a help to them. You should be a walking sacrificial offering to them in different ways. You've been gifted in different ways by the Holy Spirit and those different giftings, whether it's just compassion or it's generosity or it's hospitality or it's administration or it's teaching and preaching and whatever way you make up the body of Christ, whatever part of his body you are, that body has a function, doesn't it? Christ has no body parts that need amputation. He needs them all. You're a part of that. You're important. You're vital. You make up the entire body. You make Christianity real for this world. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. All of that. All of that. And a bag of chips. All right. Now, <clears throat> that's James 2. We also see this in Matthew chapter 2. And I literally don't remember why I picked that scripture, so I'm just as curious as you are right now. Let me see Matthew chapter 2. I think maybe I forgot to write the rest after 2. I think it might have been 20-something. Let me see. What, yeah. All right, that's interesting. Uh, Matthew 2. So where would I be going with this? Um, I am going to guess it's Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Yes, Matthew 22. Let's go to Matthew 22. Because Jesus teaches this in parable form in a really wonderful way in Matthew chapter 22. Starting in verse 1. And what I love about this parable is it teaches that we're saved by grace through faith alone, that righteousness has to be credited to us through our belief in God. Um... It also brings up the imagery of God clothing Adam for his righteousness and Adam and Eve clothing themselves was not the righteousness that could earn peace with God. So in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse one, we read, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Now, who is he talking about here? He's saying Jesus is the son who's getting married and he's sending his servants out into the Israel, into the kingdom of Israel there, and he's inviting them to the wedding. But they're rejecting him. They're giving all sorts of excuses of why they can't make it. And then amazingly, <coughs> there are people that actually take those that are inviting them and kill them. Those that are these messengers are the prophets. And as Jesus said, the prophets are always being killed, okay? So they killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways. Now, what's he mean by the highways? 
the highways are the roads that get you out of the kingdom, right? It's getting out of Israel. Go on the highways and leave Israel. Go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. I love that. Okay, even the bad and the good are invited to this wedding. These are the Gentiles. These are the ones that you only find when you get on the highways and go out of Israel there. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Heaven's going to be filled with us Gentiles. Isn't that glorious? It was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right. So our students think we have a strict dress code at CCA. Well, it ain't nothing like this one, okay? What is actually going on here? So, this king is throwing a wedding feast for his son. John the Baptist says Jesus is the bridegroom. He's come to find a bride. We talked about the creation of that bride through the side of Jesus with the blood and the water, forming the church as the bride. I hope you were with us a couple weeks ago, or last week, I think it was, that we went over that. And... <clears throat> and um, with this wedding terminology, now Jesus says this. There's a king that's throwing a wedding feast for his son. And he sends servants out, these are the prophets, to invite the, the citizens of the kingdom to the wedding. So these are the Jews. And they make all sorts of excuses of why they can't make it and they don't come. And they take it lightly and they mock the messengers. And amazingly, they kill the messengers uh, you, you heard Jesus accuse the Pharisees of being guilty of the blood of all the righteous prophets of all of history. He said, I've sent them to you, and you've killed them, you've stoned them. And so the king is furious at that, as you can imagine. So he says, now I want you to get into the highways, go out into the Gentile lands, and invite all who you see. And they do that. And that invitation fills the wedding hall. But in the midst of that, one is seen not to have a, the proper wedding garment on. And he is cast out of the kingdom. And Jesus' terminology of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth is actually saying they're in hell. Now, why? Because this wedding garment is the very cloak of righteousness that we saw Adam and Eve clothed with in the Garden of Eden. It's the offering that Abel brings, a sacrificial offering. It's this terminology we hear throughout Scripture, being clothed in glory or clothed in righteousness. Okay, That's not our own. Notice the king said, you have to have a wedding garment. Why didn't you get a wedding garment? You have to receive this garment, this garment of righteousness. So this person showed up with their own righteousness, that was their wedding clothing, was their own righteousness. And their own righteousness got them cast into hell. Why? Because what is the dress code to get to heaven? God said, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Then you will be clothed properly. So you have to ask yourself, are you doing well with that? Perfection? Are you morally perfect? Are you entirely holy? Probably not. 
So therefore, let me say this, certainly not. So therefore, you have to be clothed by Christ with his righteousness. And then when you show up to the wedding on your judgment day with his righteousness, you will be feasting with Jesus for all eternity. Amen? Amen. All right. So that's Matthew 2 in your notes. You can just put another 2 there for me. It's Matthew 22 is what I meant to write there. And then with this idea of this righteousness, I'll give you one verse from Isaiah 54 that you're familiar with and I absolutely love. Listen to this verse. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Where do we get our righteousness? From him. Is there any indication it's our own righteousness? Is there any way your works can save you? No. Is there any way you can be saved without good works in your life? No. Okay, those, those works are what prove your, your salvation. So, uh, our heritage from the Lord, he says that no weapon formed against you will prosper. And he says, in every tongue which rises against you, you'll be the one who condemns that tongue. And this is your heritage from the Lord and your righteousness is from him, says the Lord. Okay, so um, all of these teachings are lending themselves toward that understanding. And then we'll conclude <coughs> with this verse from John 6, conclude this teaching on righteousness. Um, John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. There Jesus says this, they, then they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? These are Jews who have followed 10 commandments. They have followed 613 other laws. Um, they had to perform, perform, perform. And where they fell short, they had to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. It was works based all the way. And now they ask the very logical question a Jew would ask. What are the works that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Wow. If you can just imagine the burden that was on the Jew for all those centuries of work, 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 law, law, law. And now they say, Jesus, you seem to be changing things. They seem, things seem to be different now that you're here. So tell us, we can't do 613 laws, so tell us the works that we're to work. If we're to work the works of God, what works are they? And Jesus says, believe. There's your work. Believe. All right. Paul makes a huge deal that we are not saved by works, but by grace through faith. This is urgent to embrace since it is a defining factor in what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. All others teach a system of works to bring you to God. Christianity teaches that God has done a system of works to bring himself to us. All other religions teach how to bring yourself up to God through your works and performance. Christianity is all about God brought himself down to mankind in the form of Jesus Christ. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us and he humbled himself to the point of being a bondservant, obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Totally different 
from what any other worldview presents itself as truth. This is the only one where God is working hard so that you can be saved. That is the sign of true love. That is the sign of, of God's love for us. All right. So Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. You see how glorious that is now? He's saying all the things that go for their righteousness, all the perfection that I had to perform for 33 years, those 40 days of starvation in the desert where Satan took me on face to face and I had to get out of that perfectly to offer them this perfect righteousness to them, all of these things he had to perform, perform, perform to earn and deserve his righteousness that he then imputes to us through faith and belief in him as we in turn impute our sin to him. The most unfair exchange in history. The guilty made innocent, the innocent made guilty. For God so loved the world. Okay. For God so loved the world. Now, it was finished. All right. Back to Genesis 4. Back to Genesis 4. Verse 19. Let's go to 419. Now, after Cain and Abel, we meet a man named Lamech. Here's what it says about Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, see Christ in that? It's hard to, right? So this is Lamech preaching superlative revenge. He's actually... Referring back to Cain, when Cain killed Abel and God was speaking to Cain about it and told him he'd be a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said, if I wander the earth, I'm afraid somebody will kill me. And God said, if anybody harms you, then I'll avenge that sevenfold. Now in, in Lamech's arrogance, he kills a man, maybe even two men, depending on how you understand the, the language there. And he says, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. So it's this arrogance of, I've killed two people, you try to mess with me, then we'll take down your family many other times over again. It's the arrogance of the superlative revenge. Now, how does that show us Christ? Well, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? There's the Cain reference. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So there's the Lamech reference. So where Lamech preached 77-fold vengeance, Jesus reverses that and preaches 77-fold forgiveness, doesn't he? 
77-fold forgiveness. You're to always be forgiving your offender. Now imagine how heroic Peter must have felt when he said, watch how impressed Jesus will be with me. Lord, how often do you want me to forgive my brother? If, up to seven times a day? He's got to think Jesus could say, Peter, you're super saint. Who could ever do that? But Jesus says, no, I didn't say seven times. I'm saying 70 times seven. And 490 is not the magic number there. Jesus is giving a word for ongoing, continuous forgiveness. Say, how can I do that? Don't you know what's been done to me? Don't you know how I've been wronged? Don't you know how I've been hurt? How am I to forgive like that? First of all, understand this. Your forgiveness is not to set the other person free. This forgiveness is to set you free. You will never be free from the harm that's been done to you until you can forgive. You say, well, how can I do that? Well, I just want you to remember the example you were given by the Lord. Wouldn't you say, Lord, show me. You do it first and show me how to be that forgiving. Well, he's looking at the people that drove nails through his wrists and feet. He's looking at the people, maybe the guy still has the whip in his hand that tore his back wide open. He's listening to mockers all over the place mocking him. And he says this, Father, forgive them. Now listen to what he says next because it's crucial because they don't know what they're doing. I promise you those Romans would said, we know exactly what we're doing. We are experts at this. And Jesus would say, no, spiritually, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea how demonic you are. You think you're just putting in a good day's work right now, but you have no idea what you're actually doing. And because of your ignorance, I'm going to ask my father to forgive you. And I will say this, at some significant level, everybody that's ever harmed you didn't know what they were doing, certainly didn't know spiritually what they were doing. And if they did know spiritually what they were doing, they would have been too horrified to ever do it to you. So there's an area there for forgiveness because they just don't know spiritually what they're doing. And if you can get your arms around that at some level and forgive, you will feel that burden lessen and lessen and lessen and lessen because you have never received anything that God won't give you more grace in that situation for. And I know I could be speaking to people that have stories that would crush my heart and bring me to tears. I know that but it doesn't change the Lord's instruction at all. Now, um, for your homework that you, some of you will do, and I will not check, um, I would say read on there um, beyond uh, verses uh, 22, because Jesus will say beginning in 23 to the end of it, chapter 18, therefore the kingdom of he heaven is like a certain king and it's all about forgiveness. And you're going to see how emphatically Jesus is saying, my people must be great forgivers. And the, the lesson that you're looking for in there is this. It's a man who had an unpayable debt to a king. It's physically impossible. This is like um, 10,000 years salary worth of debt he's into this king. Unpayable is the idea. And he goes to the king to ask for mercy on it because he just can't pay it back. There's no possible way. Expecting possibly to be beheaded or jailed or punished in some way. And it says the king took that enormous debt, tore it up, forgave the man completely and set him free. Then that man went out, found somebody that owed him a tiny debt and said, pay me what you owe me. 
And the man begged for mercy, and the man would not give him mercy, but had him thrown in debtor's prison. So when the king heard that, he brought that man back in front of him and said, you wicked servant, how could you be forgiven so much and not offer forgiveness in so little? So he threw that man in prison until he could pay that debt. And the idea is that the debt's not payable. So he will be there forever and ever and ever because of that unforgiveness in his heart. And what was the condition Jesus laid out of why he should have been able to forgive? You will find strength to forgive when you realize deep down in your heart just how much you've been forgiven. You've been given so much. You'll realize no human being could possibly offend you the way our sin offends God. Yet he forgave it through a very costly process of the death of his only son. So read through that parable. And I'd be happy if you uh, even ask questions on it through email for me to answer next week. I just think we need more teachings on forgiveness and more teachings on forgiveness because we are in a hurting world. People have been hurt for very cruel reasons, and I don't know that they really know through all the counseling they could get that God has set up forgiveness as to be a great healer of your soul. Okay. We will finish tonight in Genesis chapter 5. And as we read through Genesis chapter 5, I want you to remember this. We've studied Genesis chapter 1, which was creation. We studied Genesis chapter 2, which is creation told with Adam and Eve as the centerpiece of all of creation. Everything's wonderful, everything's in the garden, and everything's pure and holy. Then we studied Genesis chapter 3, where sin and rebellion against God happen, guilt and shame enter into the world, man's attempt to hide from God and cover his own sin, be his own savior, happen in chapter 3, and it's unaccepted, and God shows the willingness, instead of ending Adam's life as he said he would, he accepts a substitute death through an innocent animal, and then Adam and Eve start over again, separated from God, yet God's still working with them, and they begin reproducing, and this promise of the seed of the woman will be in battle with the seed of the serpent, plays out in the first two sons born to them, Cain and Abel, and we see the development of the doctrines of work righteousness versus being saved by faith through by grace through faith alone, not of works. We see all that unpacked for us, Throughout chapter 4, we learn about forgiveness in chapter 4, and then we get this genealogy in chapter 5. So I'm trying to show you the flow of history up until the flood, which is Genesis chapter 6. So right before we get to the flood, where God starts all over, because he says their thoughts are only evil continuously. Is there a possible worse testimony than that? Their thoughts are only evil continuously. So he floods the world. Now, before he gets to that point, for some awkward reason, a genealogy is given. So we're going to hear some key names from Adam to Noah before the judgment of the flood. And let's see what the strategic purpose of chapter 5 might be. Chapter 5, verse 1. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth... Tim also a son was born, 
and he named him Enosh. Then man began to call on the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so we get this hope-filled sentence or two here that um, as we establish the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, now it's getting established the seed of the woman's genealogy. So we're starting to trace the genealogy of the seed of the woman, and you're going to see genealogies continue through the Old Testament, and then you'll see Matthew pick up on those genealogies in the very first chapter of his gospel to bring these ge genealogies to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, correct? Okay, so let's take a look at this genealogy that follows creation, sin, and fall, and before the flood comes, Here's what we read starting in verse 6, beginning the, the, the godly seed through verse 6. We already had Adam in verse 1, and here's what I want to do. With pen in hand, because you're going to want a record of this, uh, I'm going to give you these names, and I'm going to tell you what the name means in Hebrew. So you should write the name, and then it's Hebrew meaning. The first name that we get is Adam, which means man, or mankind, okay? Man or mankind, I see some people still fussing for a pen. I'll uh, give it another moment. Okay, here we go. All right, so Adam means man or mankind. The second name we get is Seth. That name means appointed. Appointed. Seth means appointed. The third name that we get is Enosh. Now later you'll get Enoch, so make sure you distinguish the spelling difference. This is E-N-O-S-H. Later it'll be E-N-O-C-H. This is S-H. Enosh means mortal. Mortal. Like you gotta die one day, you're a mortal. You're not immortal, you're just mortal. So Enosh means mortal. Next is Canaan. Where Canaan means sorrowful. Canaan means sorrowful. One of the more beautiful names in the genealogy is next. It's Mahalalel. You can spell it just like it sounds. Yeah, I didn't think that'd be good enough for some of you. All right. Mahalalel is M-A-H-A-L-A-L-E-L. Mahalalel. Now, names that end with E-L, E-L is the Hebrew word for God, so it's saying something about God in the names that end with E-L. Hallel, that you see in the, in the middle of that name, Hallel, is where we get our word hallelujah from, and it means praise. And the ma at the beginning of this name is the Hebrew preposition meaning from. So mahalalel means from the praise of God. From the praise of God. The next name we get is Jared. Jared. Jared means one who comes down. One comes down. I used to joke and say it means the keeper of diamonds, but people get frustrated and have to cross things out, so I didn't mess with you. Jared means one comes down. Enoch, there's your E-N-O-C-H. Enoch, E-N-O-C-H. Enoch means dedicated. Dedicated, Enoch. 
One of the more fascinating stories is the next name Methuselah. Methuselah, M-E-T-H-U-S-E-L-A-H. Methuselah. Now the word meth in Hebrew ironically means death. There's a drug message for you, right? Meth means death in Hebrew. Now, Methuselah, if you read, I believe it's Enoch, uh, not Enoch, um, yeah, Enoch, first Enoch. If you read that book, you'll see there's a prophecy given to Methuselah uh, that God is going to flood the world, but he tells Methuselah, I'm not going to flood it while you're still alive. I will wait for you to die before I flood the world. And if you notice that the flood comes in Noah's 600th year, and you'll notice that Methuselah lives to be 969, and the flood comes when Noah's 369. So you see the math totally adds up that when this 969-year-old man dies, the flood comes. Now Methuselah, his name means dying he shall bring. So, so in other words, he's named after the prophecy here that when he dies, he will bring the judgment of the flood. Dying he shall bring. Our ninth name is Lamech. Lamech is what we get our word lament from, like the word from lamentations, Lamech. Lamech means the poor made low. The poor made low, Lamech. The poor made low. And our last name is Noah. Noah means rest or peace. Rest or peace is Noah. All right. So as I said, Genesis chapter 1 is about creation. Genesis chapter 2 is about the centrality of Adam and Eve and all of creation and marriage. Genesis 3 is the fall of man and separation from God and, and the entrance of sin and shame and guilt. So now as we get this downward trajectory of mankind from God, Genesis 4, we see this increasing evil. We see Cain murdering Abel, and then we see Lamech committing a double murder. We see increasing wickedness on the earth through chapter 4. Chapter 5, we get the genealogy that's preparing us for the news of the flood. Now, how are we prepared for the news of the flood in Genesis chapter 5? Well, let's just read the meanings of these names in the very order that they're given to us. And the order that they're given to us, it will say this, man, appointed, mortal, sorrowful. From the praise of God, one comes down dedicated. Dying, he shall bring to the poor made low, rest and peace. Ladies and gentlemen, we just got the gospel right before we get the flood. Okay, the gospel is given to mankind right before the judgment waters of flood comes. Okay, so God is not giving up on man, even though the thoughts of his heart are only evil continuously. Before he floods the earth, he gives the gospel message that from the praise of God, somebody's going to come down dedicated and dying, he will bring to the poor made low rest and peace. So what's this idea of the poor made low? What is this idea of the poor made low? Well, it's humility. It's humbleness. It's blessed are the meek, right? 
It's this, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's this idea of remember you're made from dust. Remember that you're not God. Remember that as your salvation is concerned, your only hope is in Jesus Christ. And that is good news. Because if it were up to me or you, there'd be no happy news to preach, would there? But it's up to one who is found perfect and without sin. It's up to one who has the all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he with that authority has chosen you and me to rescue from judgment. This should be seen in our worship. This should be seen in our daily dedicated approach to being a Christian, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The unbelieving world should know for sure that you spend time with Jesus. And the outward works of your life will benefit the many. And simple acts of kindness, that's all. Simple acts of kindness, okay? Did you ever have somebody in a drive-thru in front of you, you pulled up your turn to pay, and it says the person in front of you took care of it? Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel good? Well, do that for somebody tomorrow, okay? Just let them be kamikazed by Christian love and kindness. Let them feel what it's like to not earn or deserve a thing from you, yet they got more than they could ask for or imagine. Now you're living the gospel. Now you're living your own story. You who are a sinner in need of mercy, God has granted you a kingdom with great riches. We can do a little bit of that here on the earth, can't we? Uh, one of my favorite stories of Jesus to help understand this poor made low that will receive rest and peace I love when Jesus says there's two men who walk into the temple to pray and one of them, a Pharisee, says, looks over at the man who's a beggar and a tax collector and he says, thank you, God, that you didn't make me like him. Thank you that I'm not collecting taxes and I'm not doing these things that hurt people. Thank you, God, you did not make me like him. And the other one, says he cannot even lift up his head to heaven. He just bangs on his chest and prays, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And Jesus said to that man walked out justified and not the other. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they shall be exalted. And those who exalt themselves shall be humbled. So may we be found to be the poor made low, to receive our rest in peace, and may our salvation benefit the many, as we are shown time and time in Scripture that our works are the very thing that God has prepared for us who have received authentic faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to you, Lord, and we are eternally thankful for your love for us eternally thankful for your word to us, eternally thankful for your son. May we lift him high day in and day out so that in our lives he could draw others to himself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we can. Pastor Bill.
uh, at the very beginning here, we have some questions uh, around the meanings of names. Uh, do you happen to know the, uh, the meaning of the name Enoch and or Cain and Abel? Well, Enoch we got right here in these 10. It means dedicated. Okay, so Enoch means dedicated. Um, Cain, Cain is interesting because there's in your different versions of Bibles, it'll say that Eve bore Cain, they named him Cain. It says, I have born a man, some say from the Lord, some say even the Lord. Then your versions say, I've born a man child, even the Lord, and so forth. And some think that she believed, and this one maybe the word Cain reflects, that she may have just given birth to the seed of the woman promise of Genesis 3.15, that she knew one of her offspring would be the one to conquer the seed of the serpent, and so she may naturally have thought that was the very first one that came out of her. So that's what that name may reflect. Um if she was saying even the Lord, um, but I don't know if anybody's too certain about, about that. Uh, Abel, that name seems to reflect the fact that she realized she's giving birth to children who are doomed to die. It's like she's getting this concept of death because Abel, I believe, means vanity or passing away or something like brief and vain like that. So it would be Abel. So um, that's the best that I can recall. I can't say that I've seen that recently, but that's the best that I recall it. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, the next question is referring to uh, some of the names that you read off at the beginning of Genesis. Uh, the question basically asks, why do some of those people live to be so old at the beginning of Genesis, but now they have much shorter lifespans now? No McDonald's. Um, all right, that flopped, I can see. Well, one person liked it, okay. So, um, okay, so first of all, when God says to two people, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, they're probably gonna say, can we have some time? You know, can we have a little more time than, than normal? Not that they said that, but God gives them incredible amounts of time to fulfill this idea of, you know, we gotta start populating the planet. Now, part, some things that go into that are this. In Genesis 1, when it says God separated the waters above from the waters below, many people believe that's speaking of a water canopy that would surround the earth. This water canopy that the sun would penetrate through would create a greenhouse effect on the earth, making the whole world tropical. And we've actually found fossilized palm fronds and signs of tropical life on the poles, mostly the South Pole. So that would give some indication that possibly the entire planet was tropical. But And if that is so then this water canopy would also be keeping the harmful rays of the sun that age our cells so rapidly away from Adam and Eve in that population before the flood. And therefore, they wouldn't have the very thing that ages us so quickly. They wouldn't have that at all. Also, they start with no diseases. No diseases is a great way to live longer, obviously. Their gene pool been extremely pure and clean uh, to start off with. So there's all of those factors play into old age, uh, the, these great ages that they were living. But the most significant one to me is simply this. God is trying to populate a planet and it only makes sense that he starts with longer periods of time. Now, I, now it's, it's after the flood that you see these lifespans greatly shortened. 
And that certainly could be, if that water canopy collapsed to help flood the earth, now that we don't have that protection from the sun, the, and also what happened when God allowed people to live six, seven, eight, nine hundred years? They became very evil, became very wicked. So it might be a great act of God's mercy that he shortens lives so we don't grow that wicked. That given time apart from him, things could only get worse. So in his mercy, he takes us before we get too bad. Uh, may be a part of that story as well. So all of those could be right, some of those could be right, and none of those could be right. So there's your answer. Thank you, guys. I love the honesty. Uh, question number three reads, uh, is it biblical to forgive someone who isn't asking for forgiveness? I understand doing it completely, but I'm curious how it aligns with God not forgiving those that don't repent and come to him for forgiveness. Okay, not sure I caught, understood the last part of that. Um, can you re repeat it for me? Sure. Is it biblical to forgive someone who isn't asking for forgiveness? I understand doing it completely, but I'm curious how it aligns with God not forgiving those that don't repent and come to him for forgiveness. Okay. So, um, you're forgiving them. Um, you're forgiving them is what you're asked to do. So, um, and it, like I said, it's part of your healing. So I think, I mean, if they're talking about a face-to-face -face apology where they're looking them in the eye and saying, I forgive you, and they go, but I didn't do anything wrong, so I don't know what you're actually forgiving, that's enough. You, you forgave them, so you did your part. You're not accountable for their part and what they, how they respond to that forgiveness. You just need to do your faithful part. Many times I've had people that have had tremendous difficulty forgiving somebody and I have them write letters to them and in those letters uh, they forgive them but they never send the letters but they end up feeling greatly healed because they brought it to God and said God I forgive them and that's probably the situation this person is talking about where that person wouldn't acknowledge that they did anything wrong and therefore wouldn't accept that forgiveness or that apology or that uh, whatever but it still served to heal them tremendously. So um, I would say you should still forgive no matter what, for sure. Mostly for the reason given by Jesus in Matthew 22 that you've been forgiven so much. So it's like getting a billion dollars and somebody saying, can I borrow 20 bucks? And you say no. If you realize how much you've been given, it should be easy for you to give back these, these lesser, uh, lesser um, offenses you should be able to forgive. So I think you should still forgive if that's a question, even if it's not accepted. And this next question is, is pretty similar, but, but does take a slightly different angle, Pastor Bill. It's referring to Luke chapter 17, verse 3, where it says, if your brother repents. So the question says, what if someone brings great harm and they do it repeatedly and they never repent? Are we to forgive? Um, and, and like most of us on here that that's happened to, the person just expresses that they have a hard time with this when someone just repeatedly sins against them. Yes. So I first want to say I understand the tremendous difficulty you're in and acknowledge my own weakness if I'm in that same situation. 
except for the teaching that you and I are both under is 70 times seven, endless forgiveness, because then we're recognizing the endless forgiveness that we are under as well. So, um, and I think that's why Peter was probably thinking he was being heroic by saying, should I do it seven times a day? And Jesus says, no, it's 70 times seven. It's always. Um, and believe me when I tell you, I'm saying that from a position of, I don't know how good I'd be at that myself, but certainly I must acknowledge that the teaching from our Lord is that you're to do it 70 times seven, endlessly, always, with in mind that you are the object of endless forgiveness. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, this next question revolves around um, God's sovereign choices. Um, it basically says uh, God's choosing of us before the foundation of the world. Is it not the will of man that brings his salvation, but of God's sovereign choices? Predestination is the question, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. All right. So this is one of those uh, can of worms ones. All right. Now, if you took note in the parable of the wedding feast that we went through, these are God calling people to the wedding feast, which is heaven, correct? And notice the word that was used over and over again. Invite them, invite them, invite them. Christianity is a very invitational religion, isn't it? There's nothing compulsory about it. It's always inviting, inviting, inviting. And you actually see those that were invited reject. It's really hard to work in the strictest understanding of predestination into those verses. And of course, those that are very much believing in that strict type of predestination um, will say, bring up other verses. So there are verses that seem to show we're chosen before the foundation of the world, uh, yet you have to choose and so forth like that. So I'll give you an idea to run with as you look up your verses on predestination that serves as a guide for me and my understanding of it is this. I think the concept of predestination, I think most vividly comes out of the pen of the Apostle Paul in the books of Ephesians and Romans. And as Paul speaks of predestination in Ephesians and Romans, he's writing to Gentile churches, the church in Ephesus and the church in Rome. So these are churches packed with Gentiles. And to those Gentile churches, he says, you have been predestined. Yet, he calls on the individuals to believe and to be faithful and to endure or else they may face wrath one day. Well, what a mixed message that is, right? You're predestined, don't blow it. If you're predestined, you can't blow it, right? And if you can blow it, you're not predestined. So what is it? Well, I think, think that he's speaking to the group as a whole, these groups of Gentiles, when he says you have been predestined. I think he's referring to, and he even quotes this in Romans, he'll quote the, the Old Testament text where God says, there's a people who are my people who will no longer be called my people. And there's a people who are not my people who will be called children of the living God. I think that's the predestination. He's saying beforehand in the Old Testament that a time's coming 
when a people group who are not my people will be called my people. I'm predestinating Gentiles to salvation. But he's not predestinating every individual Gentile. He's predestinating the group that are called Gentiles that have not been his people throughout uh, redemptive history before. Now that Gentiles are called the people of God, certainly every individual Gentile has to respond positively to that. And there's certainly Gentiles in Galatia, in Rome, and throughout the Gentile world that don't respond to that. So it can't be this, you have been predestined Gentile church, therefore all of you are going to heaven. No, you've been predestined because you were once not the people of God and now you are. So you as a group have been predestined. Now you individuals within that group must make your free choice to participate in that. So if I walked into a restaurant and said, all your dinners are on me, I predestined that restaurant for free meals. But now you as an individual there could say, I don't need that, I'm gonna pay for it myself. Well, now you gotta pay for your own meal. But it doesn't mean I didn't predestinate the restaurant for free meals, you just chose not to participate in that. So I think that understanding helps solve all the verses that say, you have been chosen. I think that you is plural, but you as an individual have to choose to participate in that choosing. So therefore, invitations to the kingdom go out, as we see in Matthew 22. So that's my framework for understanding all of this. And I think there's ways of understanding all the verses that go with predestination under that umbrella. So uh, take that bit of information, do your homework. And if you need to email me and say, here's why you're definitely wrong, I will definitely carefully look at your argument and see if that's so and um, privately repent, not publicly, because that's really embarrassing. Thank you, Pastor Bill. The next question, uh, earlier tonight, you basically went through all the names of genealogy leading up to the flood. Uh, so the question basically just says, um, you know, when, when Noah comes along and everything starts over, Okay, so now you're, you're talking about the genealogies like we get in Chronicles and, 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 and so forth after the flood and before Christ. Um, yes, after starting with Noah and going beyond that, yes. Yeah, that's a lot of names that I have not done any homework at all on those names whatsoever. And then uh, the, I think the most important genealogy is Matthew 1 and Luke 3, which um, Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus and more impressively, Luke goes from Adam to Jesus. And uh, I don't see different names in there. And people will say, well, Jesus can't have these two separate genealogies. So what's up with that? Yes, he can. He's got one that's tracing his mother in Luke. Because um, once they get to David's name, Matthew goes to Solomon, David's son. And uh, Luke goes to, I believe it's Nathan, another son of David and traces lines from there, because one's going to Joseph and one's going to Mary. So um, showing, through tracing it through Joseph, it's showing his right to be the king of Israel, because remember, <clears throat> David's kingly right is passed on to Solomon and his offspring, so you see Jesus is entitled to that role of king through Solomon's line, and then <clears throat> you also see the bloodline come through Mary to show that he was actually 
um, human, you know, that he has this human genealogy. And it also, that line avoids a curse that I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a curse that happens in the Old Testament to one of David's descendants where it says, your line will no longer uh, have the Messiah come through it uh, because of that curse. So you would say, well, then how could Jesus be it? Well, the curse is through his bloodline. His bloodline doesn't go through Joseph because Joseph was not his biological father. So you see Mary's line doesn't have that individual in it that had the curse. So as far as his bloodline goes, it's pure through Mary, yet he can be king because he follows through David and Solomon. So in other words, there's not many people that meet all these criteria um, and avoid curses and remain in the kingly line and all these things, but Jesus does. So it's showing you how few people can make this claim to be Messiah. And when you look at all the prophecies, it's truly only one that can make the claim, and it's Christ. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Uh, we are going back, switching directions back to the topic of forgiveness. We seem to keep having questions on forgiveness. Uh, these questions actually come from two different angles. How do you forgive someone that died and did awful harm to you? And how do you forgive? How does someone? Uh, you know, how do you receive forgiveness once someone has passed on? Yeah. So, uh, same question, right? Yep, okay. So um, you, you just, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living, right? So when uh, he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not a God of the dead, but of the living. So what I would say when you're saying somebody harmed me who's passed on, then you're not asking the dead to forgive you. You're, you're asking God to forgive you for whatever it is that that person that passed on represents. So um, I don't think there's a situation you can say that you can bring up tonight that I wouldn't say just through a prayer of either asking God to help you to forgive because you know that if you do forgive him, you really was just word service or lip service, but asking God to generally teach you to forgive the way Jesus forgives you. Okay, use that as a, a, you know, an opportunity to learn about your Lord, your Savior, about the forgiveness that you're receiving. So I'd say whether they passed on or they're alive or they've moved away or whatever the case may be, let the Lord know your great interest in learning how to forgive. A lot of times we don't want to forgive because we think we're giving them a free pass on the harm that they did us. That is not what it's, it's doing. It's simply saying you can chain yourself to suffering by being by not forgiving. When you think you're holding them guilty or accountable by not forgiving, no, you're not. They're going on with their life. They had their day apart from you today. Doing what they're doing, whether you forgave them or not, they're moving on. They're doing their thing. This forgiveness is about your repair. It's about your health. Okay? It's about you becoming like Christ. So Christ forgave the guys that killed them. That's a serious offense. Caused them a lot of suffering and pain. And he forgives them. And these things are written for us, for us to follow. Now, we, a lot of us have a lot of work to do on doing the things that Jesus had done as examples for us. But it doesn't mean we don't do the work. Even if you're far from it, you do the work. You do 
Lord, help me become that. Lord, have mercy on me. Allow me to forgive the way you've taught me to forgive. My heart wants to hold on with guilt and everything. And I think when you do that, you'll start realizing what good is holding on to this unforgiveness doing? Is it really affecting the other person? Am I really getting revenge on them? Probably not. They probably don't even know what you're going through forgiveness-wise, okay? So listen, unforgiveness largely comes from you wanting them to suffer and pay for what they did to you. Here's what God says. Vengeance is, he doesn't say bad, he just says it's mine. So you're taking that which is God's for yourself. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So vengeance is not a bad thing at all. It's just not yours. You won't do it right. You'll overdo it or something. So the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Do you trust that? Do you have faith in that? Can you trust God at his word when he says, I will repay, says the Lord, I will repay. So you could just let it go. It's in God's hands, okay? And he'll balance those scales of justice perfectly, absolute perfection. Um, where you've been knocked down, he'll lift you up. Where they've lifted themselves up, he's gonna knock them down. He'll do it perfectly. Now it's a matter of do you believe and do you trust? And that may be where the work has to be done in your life. So, so pray and involve a trusted Christian in that journey with you that you can talk to and let them know what you want, what you, where you want to be spiritually with forgiveness and, and, and you want accountability and you want help and you want conversations and, and all of that. And have a story of learning to forgive like Jesus, like you've been forgiven. I think that's what sanctification is all about. Thank you, Pastor Bill. The next question came to us from YouTube. The question reads, is what Rahab did to protect the spies considered a lie? Is it justified? Does it mean that there are quote unquote white lies? I was saying yes to all of that until you called them white lies. I think they're actually righteous lies. Um, and I get a lot of negative feedback when I teach this, but um, I do believe there's righteous lies. I do believe that when um, when uh, Anne Frank is, is, is being hidden and Nazis knock on the door to say, do you have Jews in here? The only righteous response is a lie. No, there's no Jews in here. I think it's completely unrighteous to tell the truth in that particular situation. Um, I think there are life and death situations that reverse the normal ethic. Life and death situations mean you're supposed to deceive your enemy. Um, that's what war is all about, correct? Listen, when God sends spies into the land, why are they spies? Because they're supposed to be present there, yet represent themselves as not being present there. That's deceit, that's deception. The whole idea of a spy is to deceive, right? And yet God sends spies into the land. And immediately after Rahab lies to her king's people, she's rewarded with salvation for that. When the, when the Hebrew women are the, um, they're the, uh, 
the girls that catch the babies when they fall out of the women, whatever they're called. Midwives, thank you. The midwives, um, they're supposed to kill these boys. If, if a boy is born, they're supposed to throw it in the Nile River, and they don't. And when they're confronted, they lie. And the very next verse after their lie, it says God awarded them with husbands and families. He's happy with that. It's life and death, and the ethic gets reversed where you're supposed to deceive your enemy. In fact, you could really unpack what Jesus does on the cross as a great deception on Satan, where it looks like he wins and he doesn't. It's deception because it's warfare. So um, I think there's righteous lies, yes. Not when your wife says, does this make me look fat? That wouldn't count as that <laughs> type of thing, because I don't have to worry about that, right, baby? <laughs> All right, but, uh, but in matters of life and death, I believe there are righteous lies. And I've had people shoot back at me saying that if the Nazis are knocking at the door asking if you're hiding Jews and you are, you're to say, yes, you are, and trust God. Listen, my trusting God is in that he gives me the wisdom to deceive in that moment and the courage to deceive in that moment. Okay, if you're to trust God in these blind ways, my question to you is this. Do you look both ways for you cross the street or you just trust God? Okay, I bet you you look both ways before you cross. You don't say, God, I believe you have a plan for my life. Therefore, there's no way I'm getting hit by a truck today. So I'm going to walk across the street without looking. That is foolish. That is tempting God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's tempting him. Okay, so um, that's how I feel about it anyway. And I'm sure I could have created great disagreements out there. And that's why um, you can email Mike, and that's why God gave him a delete button as well. Let's see now. All right. Thank you for that, Pastor Bill. All right. All right, we've got one last question here tonight, Pastor Bill, and it uh, refers back to Matthew chapter 22, the uh, parable of peace. Why did the king in the parable call the man not dressed properly a friend, and how did the man get into the feast in the first place? Yeah. Well, I would say we're not to understand him being in the feast as he made it to heaven. I would say he made it to the judgment seat of Christ, I would say, is the way to understand that. But what was the first part of the question? Why did he call him friend? Yeah, so um, let me see. Yeah, I don't know. Just being friendly, I guess. I don't know. I don't think it means anything. I don't think it's... Um, when Jesus says, I call you friends, I don't think they're in any danger of being cast into hell You know, as a friend of Christ. I just think it's a, a term to catch his attention more than anything else. Just like we can say it to a total stranger, hey, friend, you know, something. Uh, I, don't, I can't imagine there's anything to it. Thank you, Pastor Bill. That does wrap up tonight's Q&A session. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate you. We will see you guys next Wednesday. God bless you all. Bye-bye.